Okay, good evening, everybody. Ever heard a uh, commencement speech, some of the, the lines that are fairly cliche? You'll hear, keep on dreaming, follow your dreams, don't let anybody tell you what you can accomplish. Right, the world is open for your achievements. Don't be a victim, take control of your destiny. It's all yours to do. Find your passion and pursue it relentlessly. These are what young men and women are told as they're graduating high school, college, graduate school. And we do believe in these ideas. We believe that we have endless potential and we can't squelch, we, we cannot minimize what we can accomplish. On the other hand, if the last six months have taught us anything, I think one of the major lessons we're walking away with is the fact that not much is really in our control. Our ability to guide and manipulate our surroundings and even our very lives is incredibly limited. We can dream of a glorious future, but there's no promise for tomorrow. And that's a very scary reality. We've been caught off guard by the fragility of human existence and our own finite instability. So we have these two worlds, conceptually, where on one hand, we do believe that we could accomplish anything and, and we could keep on dreaming. But on the other hand, we know that there's so much outside of our control. There is so much outside of our sphere of influence. I'd like to share with you what I think is somewhat of the balance between these two extreme ideas. And Mirta Shem, we're going to explore part of the uh, nature of Rosh Hashanah, what exactly is happening, what is our mindset as we go into this awesome day, this Yom Hadin, and uh, through getting a clearer picture of what Rosh Hashanah is, and what we're looking forward to, what we're actually enthusiastically waiting for, will help us find the balance between keep on dreaming you could do anything, and the realization, sometimes the very scary realization, that there's so much out of our control. Famously, the tour, when he starts his discussion on Rosh Hashanah, he says, quoting the Midrashic source, that you would think for most people, if they were going to have some form of judgment, some form of evaluation that would be determining their future, they would have a sense of an overwhelming pachad, of trepidation, of crippling fear. They wouldn't be dressed up in nice clothing, they wouldn't bathe beforehand, they wouldn't shave and take a haircut, but they would be almost, almost non-functional. He says, but Klal Yisrael, Einan Kane. That's not what we do. Rather, Lovshim Levanim, Misatfim Levanim, we wear beautiful white clothing. We shave, we get a haircut, we cut our nails. Vaochlin, Vishosin, Usmechin, Hashanah. And on the day itself of Rosh Hashanah, the actual Yom Hadin, we're commanded to eat and to drink and to enjoy the Yantif. Where is the Simcha coming from? Where is this sense of freedom and, and, and celebration coming from? 
Lefisha Yodin Shekadash Baruchu Yase Lehemnes. Because we know, Lefisha Hem Yodin, we know, we have a certainty, we have a clarity that Hashem will come through for us miraculously. Hashem will do a miracle for us. Now that phrase itself is worthy of a lot of discussion. What exactly does that mean, Hashem will do a miracle? And I'd like maybe to focus more on that idea next week, the miracle of life and what's actually happening during Rosh Hashanah, Sersimei Tshuva, Yom Kippur. But I think a more basic question is, when we read this piece in the tour and it's quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, one could ask the question, if the simcha of the yontif, the joy that we're celebrating as we step into Rosh Hashanah and during Rosh Hashanah is the fact that we're yodim, we know that a Kaddish Baruch Hu will pull through for us, and we assume that means, in the famous analogy of the Gemara, we have the Sefer Achaim and the Sefer Amavis, we know that Hashem will inscribe us in the Book of Life, and therefore we're besimcha, we're happy. There are so many righteous people, and we think back to this year itself. We think back to the thousands upon thousands of people who have been impacted, who have lost loved ones, whose lives will never be the same based on this horrific pandemic. And we're definitely not out of the woods as we sit here with masks on. So how do we have this sense of confidence, this feeling of bitachon, that I know Hashem will inscribe us in the book of life, that He'll do a miracle for us? There are so many tzaddikim, there are so many gedolim, there were so many great, great Torah giants who perished just this year. So where does that, where does that feeling come from? How do I know it will be different for me? I'm no better than anybody else. The truth is, the Shla articulates this question beautifully. He says, Ki lios Lios How do we have the audacity to have the bitachon, to have the confidence that Hashem will do a miracle for us and allow us to merit a new year, a year of life? We've seen with our eyes. Every year, holy, cherished, beloved people, fathers and sisters and mothers and zaydis and babis pass away. And other people, if they're able to survive the year, but people become sick. People have issues now they're dealing with with the rest of their lives. Says the Shla, it doesn't seem like a miracle happened for all of these people. And therefore his question on the expression of the Torah is quite simple and straightforward. How do we have the bitachon? Where does this confidence come from? when we see there are so many tzaddikim who don't make it and who suffer along the way. To jump for a moment to the mitzvah of the day, the mitzvah of tekiyah shofar. 
So in the Torah's expression of describing what is the name of the holiday, what do we call Rosh Hashanah in the Torah? So it tells us that on the seventh month, on the first of that month, the month that we know as Tishrei, that'll be a Shabbosa and that'll be a Yom Tov, Zichron Trua Mikre Kodesh. The Torah is encapsulating the day of Rosh Hashanah, calling it a Zichron Trua, a day where we commemorate the blasts of the shofar. That's Zichron Trua. If you look at the Targum, the Aramaic translation, but also explanation of what that phrase Zichron Trua means, the Targum says, Duchran Yabava. It'll be a day of remembering Yabava, which means crying. The way that he's translating Zichron Trua, the sound of the shofar, is really the sound of the remembrance of Yabava, of crying. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's a day of tears, you could say. The Medrash tells us a story that there are different, uh, different variations of what exactly took place. But I'll share with you what it says in the Medrash Rabbah, Medrash uh, Rabban Vayikra, where it speaks about the death of Sarah Imenu. It tells us that we know that when Avram took Yitzchak to the Akedah, he brought him up the mountain, and he built an altar, and he set up the wood, and he got the entire Mizbeach ready, and in the dramatic scene, he takes his knife to slaughter his son, but if not for the angel calling forth from heaven, telling him, don't touch the son, don't touch your, your boy, we know that Yitzchak would have been shechted. He would have been killed by his father. The Medrash tells us that Shechazer Yitzchak Eitzel Imo, that Yitzchak, after this very dramatic experience, he returns to his mother. And she says to her beloved son, Where have you been? I told you to be home by 10.30. It's already 11.45. I was worried sick about you. Where have you been? So Amrullah, Yitzchak says to his mother, and at the time, you have to remember, he was 37 years old. He wasn't 18. So he was a pikeach. He had a lot of wisdom. How does he respond to mom? You should know, Natlani Avi, that my father took me and he brought me to the mountain and he tied me down on the Mizbeach and it was pretty close, because I was right there. It was, the knife was in the air, and uh, I thought that was the end. I was ready. I was, I was accepting the din. So Sarah cries out, and she says, Oy vey, I can't believe this actually happened to you. If it wasn't for the angel calling out from heaven, Telling my husband, telling your father not to go through with this, you wouldn't be here right now. Amrullah'in. And Yitzchak said, That's exactly what I'm saying, Mom. That's what happened. But also, Shah, at that moment, when Sarah realized what Yitzchak had been through, Tsovcha Shisha Kolos, she cried out six times. Keneged Shisha Tekios. 
corresponding to the six tekios, the six times we blow the shofar. Now we know we actually blow the shofar how many times? A lot of times, but how many times do we actually need from the, the technical Torah obligation? Really nine times. If we knew exactly what the Torah wanted us to be blowing, it would be nine kolos. Yet here it says, she cried six times, corresponding to the six kolos, the six sounds of the shofar. And after crying, after being so overwhelmed by that news and the realization that she came this close to losing her only child, she passed away. When Avram heard about this, so obviously he was devastated. This was his wife of so many years, so many decades, working together, revolutionizing the world together. But part of him was nervous. If it ended like this, maybe there was something wrong in the process that led to this terrible fatality. Maybe there was something off in my machshavid, my intention, during the Akedah. And Hashem had to comfort Avram. And he said, don't worry. Don't worry. Quoting the Pasuk in Kohelis, Leich echel b'simcha lachmecha. Go eat your bread with joy. So the whole Chazal is extremely troubling. This was the end of Sarah Imenu. One of the greatest women ever to walk the face of the earth. The, the, the human being that literally transformed the world together with Avram Avinu. She was the Akeris Abayi. She was the support of everything that he was able to do. She herself was willing to sacrifice everything. Davening with, with, with Kavana Atsuma to finally have a child at 90 years old being Zohar to have a child looking forward to creating a whole new reality, an understanding of Hashem Echad, one of the greatest prophets ever to live. We know from Rashi that her nevuah was greater than the prophecy of Avram. It just doesn't seem fair that she would die in such a tragic way. This was her end? This was the, the demise of Sarah Imenu? And you also have to ask, what was Yitzchak thinking? If, if she was that emotional, so clearly he would have been aware of the fact that, that she would take it in a pretty harsh way. So why do you have to get into all the details presented differently? You should do a similar trick to what they did with Yaakov when they were trying to explain that Yosef was still alive. Get someone to make up a song. Right? Why would he present it like that? And I think the third issue we have to address, just trying to understand this particular Chazal, what in the world does her crying six times have to do with the Tekios on Rosh Hashanah? With the sounds of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? That's what we're commemorating? Right? We get together, we have a mitzvah deraisa, Torah obligation to blow the shofar. For what reason? To remind ourselves of the terrible, horrible death that Sarah died as she was grief-stricken over the possibility of her son not making it. What in the world does that have to do with Rosh Hashanah? The Avudraham, 
one of the great commentators tells us, but this is why we blow the shofar in Rosh Hashanah. Now we know there are many, many different reasons, many layers, but one, one layer of the onion, one aspect of truth as to why we have the mitzvah of the Kiyah Shofar and Rosh Hashanah, the Avudraham tells us, that Hashem should remember, quote unquote, Hashem should recall the crying of Sarah Imenu, the tears that she shed when she heard about Yitzchak, and that should serve as a source of forgiveness for all of Klal Yisrael. So the first question of the Shlah, how do we have bitachon, knowing that Hashem will pull through for us miraculously when we see so many great people greater than ourselves who didn't make it this past year? What is that bitachon? Where does that come from? Why are we not fooling ourselves with that mindset? And then we have this very troubling chazal. Why did Sarah have to die so tragically? Why didn't Yitzchak therefore present the information differently? And what in the world does her crying six times have to do with blowing the shofar in Rosh Hashanah? You ask the question, why do people cry? It's a strange thing. So the, the most basic understanding as to why we cry is we have an emotion that's so incredibly strong, it's so powerful, we can't assimilate it in the natural way. Most things throughout the day, if it's something a little bit disappointing or something encouraging, something that sounds good, something that sounds not so good, we, we take it in stride. Maybe things build up, but when we cry, it's based on the fact that I'm experiencing something so intense, either an event or hearing about something tragic, where I can't process that information in my normal daily routine, and it brings me to the point of bechia. It causes me to cry. And that, we have tears of sorrow, tears of hopelessness, tears of despair. We also have tears of joy, tears of satisfaction. I remember I was probably 20, 21 at the time, and I was in the hospital with my mother and my brother's mother-in-law, as they, my brother and my sister-in-law, were having their first baby. Not a good thing to have family members in the hospital while you're having your first baby, <laughs> but that's what we did. And it was a long ordeal. I remember waiting in the lobby with my mother and my brother's mother-in-law, and hours were going by, and then finally I get a text. And this was on the, oh, this is before the dumb phone. So it was a really dumb phone, and it was actually a picture of my first nephew. And it was the ugliest little thing I've ever seen in my life. And I wasn't sure, should I show this to my mother? <laughs> Maybe I'll just hide the picture. And Baruch Hashem, he was actually much cuter in person. But as I was there, and you could hear from the different rooms, you could hear the giving of birth 
screaming, of mommy, doctors encouraging, and then you hear a little cry of a baby. And that brought me to tears. These are people I've never met before. I can't even see who they are, but it's that, that awesome reality that could be overwhelming. We had uh, recently, when my son was five, so Friday night, we have a couple different zmiros we usually sing, and um, often we'll sing Menucha V'Simcha. And there are a couple different nagunim there. So we often do one particular melody, and as the melody is ending, it actually goes beautifully into the Mordechai ben David song, Someday We Will All Be Together. So we kind of started that new custom. As Menucha V'Simcha is ending, we go into... Someday we will all be together. So we're doing this. And my son, who was five, tells my wife, whenever they sing that song, I cry a little bit. That's from a five-year-old boy. So there's tears of despair and hopelessness, but there's also tears of joy or just being overwhelmed by a moment or tears of satisfaction or fulfillment. Death itself, when someone passes away, that could also be based on a sense of hopelessness, a sense of giving up, right? I'm no longer fighting, it's not worth it, and therefore almost allowing themselves to pass on. If you speak to people who work in hospice or nurses in general, they'll tell you oftentimes the family almost has to give permission for the, the parent or the, the grandparent to be able to let go and move on and transition to the Olam HaEmes. Sometimes, though, the death process actually starts not because of a sense of despair, but because of feeling of shleimus. A person feels that Baruch Hashem, I've accomplished a lot, I have nachas, and at this point I feel I'm ready on some level, I've achieved my mission in this world, and then they allow themselves to leave this world. An example of this we find with Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov, when he hears about Yosef, who's actually alive, and then they have their powerful reunion, the first thing that Yaakov says to Yosef is, Amusa hapam ki Now I can die after I've seen your face and I see that od that you're still alive. That's a strange thing to say. We've been separated for more than two decades. And I would have thought the natural reaction would be, I can't wait to now really spend quality time with you, Yosef. We have a lot to catch up on. We have a lot of learning to do. We have a lot of schmoozing to do. Let's play golf together. Let's have fun. Let's have time. But now I can die. Baruch Hashem, I can die. So the Orachim explains what Yaakov Avinu was telling Yosef. That as soon as Yaakov heard that Yosef was still alive, we assume automatically, like the Pusik says, life was infused back into Yaakov. But explains the Orachayim, he was still very concerned because he now understood that Yosef was taken captive. He was living in a land, a foreign place, 
the outside influences, the assimilation, living in the Makar Hatuma, the source of impurity in the world, being, being drenched in, the, in, in the, the filth of Mitzrayim. Yaakov was so concerned, I can't wait to see Yosef again, but who is he going to be? What kind of Yosef will he be? The Dover Yodua, very, very powerful thing to say, the Orachayim tells us. It's a Dover Yodua. It's known that when it comes to tzaddikim, if they had the choice to lose a child, God forbid, Rachmanad Letzlan, or have a child totally run away and neglect the Derech Torah, it's more hurtful, it's more painful for the, for the parent for the child to stay alive, but to be totally disconnected from Torah. That was the concern of Yaakov. Therefore, lo shleima, his simcha was not sholem, until vayar a love, when he finally saw Yosef, vehikar bo bifanav, and he could tell by his face. Tzadikim have the ability to look at you and understand so much about you and the makeup of your neshama, only once he saw Yosef and he realized that Yosef is the same tzaddik he was so many years ago and he has not been brought down in his madrega in his spiritual heights based on the environment in which he's been living. Only at that point, then Yaakov said, I realize that you're still alive, not physically. means that you're still a tzaddik like you were before. You're still alive in the spiritual sense. The energy is there, the fire is there. You're not different than you were before, but you're alive. Then Yaakov said, now I'm okay if I pass away. Not because he didn't want to spend more time with Yosef, but he had a sense of fulfillment. Baruch Hashem, I feel like I was Makayim. I, I, I did my shlichus. I, I accomplished what I had to accomplish, and I'm okay leaving now. The Tzitz Eliezer, who was the great Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, one of the great poskim of the 20th century. He was the, uh, the head halachic advisor to Shari Tzedek Hospital in Eretz Yisrael. He has a tshuva, which is actually a Rosh Hashanah sermon that he gave before Tekiah Shofar. And he quotes this very mystifying chazal, the chazal of Sarah Imenu dying after she cried six times, hearing what happened to Yitzchak. And the Tzitz Eliezer says as follows. Most people read that Chazal and assume that she was crying tears of pain. She was overwhelmed by the possibility of losing her son and she emotionally couldn't take it and that's why she allowed herself or she couldn't help herself from dying. But explains Revaldenberg, that's not pshat. That's not actually what happened with Sarah Menu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu would never let her pass away with that level of tragedy and despair. But he says, really, they were tears of joy. They were cries of simcha. 
not cries of despair. Acher sheshama mi banah when she heard that her husband had the mysterious nefesh, he had the self-sacrifice, he was willing to bring his own son as a carbon, and that my boy was willing to go along with this, to be makayim, to fulfill the rotzon of, of, of Hashem, she realized that that second I was able to achieve real chinuch. Right? Education. My son is living the dream. He's living the dream because he's willing to give his life for the cause in which that he believes in. He's living the dream. This was her whole point of living. She didn't care about life just in order to have another opportunity to, uh, to go out to eat or one of the other many pleasures of life. Those were all wonderful things that she enjoyed. But she had a total laser focus. What am I doing here in this world? It's to, it's to create a new generation of people who will share Torah, with the masses. What does Torah mean in a time of Avram and Sarah? So we know there are three basic pillars of faith, right? The Rambam has 13, but theoretically, like the Sefer Ikrim tell us, as do others, you could take the 13 major principles and distill them down to three. Number one is that there's a HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's a God in the world who created and who sustains, who infuses life every second. Number two is that there's, there's charva onesh, there's hashkacha pratis, Hashem is involved with our lives. What we do matters, there are consequences to our actions. And number three, the Torah is authentic. The Torah is the revealed word of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Those are the three pillars of Judaism. Two out of those three were relevant in the times of Avram and Sarah. That there's a God in the world and that he's involved with our daily lives. We have a relationship with him. The third pillar, although the Avos themselves kept the Torah, it was not yet introduced into the world. So explains the Sitzeliezer. Why did she cry six times, corresponding to six Tikiyos and not the nine Tikiyos that we actually have in Rosh Hashanah? Because we know that every set of three correspond to Malchios, Zichronos, and Shofros. Namely, we remind ourselves, we declare Malchios, Hashem is Melech. We believe wholeheartedly that it's Einod Milvado. That belief that we have today, that we nurture and we pass on to our children, that was developed by Avram and Sarah. Three of her cries were corresponding to the three tekios of Malchios. Three of her cries were corresponding to Zichronos, that we don't just believe there's an aloof creator, but a Kaddish Baruch who is intimately involved with every aspect of my life, every challenge, every triumph. Hashem is there with me. Those were the three tekios, the three sounds that were corresponding to Zichronos, but there were only six altogether because the Torah Shofros, 
which is our declaration, just like the shofar was blowing at Har Sinai. It's our proclamation that we believe that Torah minashamayim, that Torah is real, and we live and we die by Torah. That was not yet introduced into the world. So she cried six times, not out of sorrow, not out of pain and anguish, but out of a sense of extreme joy and hakara satov that the two foundations that we have so far of morality, of, of, of justice, of equality, of all of the tenets of Judaism and humanity, they're being brought forth in the next generation. She then passed away, not based on despair, but based on a sense of fulfillment. Like in the words of Yaakov Avinu, now I feel I can go. I've accomplished my mission. Does the name Rav Ram Elimelech Fewer ring a bell? He is very well known in Eretz Yisrael. Um, he himself has no official medical background or training but being a brilliant man who cares deeply for Klal Yisrael, he's been working now for over 30 years in being the go-to expert in the field of whatever medical issue you have. If you could get through to Rabbi Feuer, and I myself have directed many people towards him to get his Eitzah in many different areas of medical issues, he is the, the guru, he is the expert and he could refer you to the top doctor in any area, anywhere in the world. He said that he was coming back from a, a major fundraising meeting. It was late at night, and Baruch Hashem, it was successful. They got what they were looking for, and him and his colleague who went together to the meeting, they were overwhelmed with Simcha and Hakar Satov, and they decided, although it was very late, Let's go to the Kosel. Let's express our gratitude to Hashem in the holiest place on earth. So they walk together towards the Kosel. It's 2.30 in the morning. And as they're getting closer, they hear the cries of a woman. And they see from a distance that there's a lady sitting there with her head down who's weeping. And they say to each other, listen, Baruch Hashem, we just had tremendous siyat the We were able to have all this money. Let's make a Kabbalah. Let's accept upon ourselves. We're going to speak with her. And whatever her issue is, if it's medical or otherwise, we're going to make it our business that we're going to be there to support her financially or in any other way possible. So they walk over to the lady who's crying bitter tears. And Rabbi Fura says, What's, what's, what's the problem? Can we do anything for you? And she looks up and she says, No, Baruch Hashem, I'm crying because we just married off our last child and it was such a beautiful chasana. It wasn't big, it wasn't fancy, not a lot of people there, but it was so beautiful. And I'm just, I'm just saying thank you to Hashem. And that's it. I don't need anything. Those are tears of joy. Those are tears of accomplishment. Not prideful accomplishment, but humble accomplishment. Those were the tears of Sarimenu. Those are the tears we're commemorating with Takiya Shofar. 
We blow the shofar, and we're not crying out of despair, but we're crying a Kaddish Baruch Hu. We want to be able to accomplish. We want to be able to come closer to you. We want to excel in our avodas Hashem. We want to live, not just for the sake of living, but because otherwise, if I'm not alive, I can't stand before you. I can't sing to you. I can't be an Eved Hashem. That's why we want to live. Those are the sounds of the shofar and Rosh Hashanah corresponding to Sari Menu. It's not tragic, it's beautiful. David Amalek writes in Tehillim that we say now every day, twice a day, that I hope to Hashem, I have bitachon, I yearn to Hashem, and if it's not necessarily coming through, no problem, strengthen your heart and yearn more. The Mabim explains that David Melech is telling us <clears throat> that most of the time in life when we're yearning for something, when we really want something, there's no point in wanting something unless we actually get it. Right? The words of the Malbim, Tachlis hakivu The point of having a desire to achieve something is hopefully I'll get to the point where I no longer have that desire. I really want a house. I want to get out of my apartment. And then I get a beautiful house. Baruch Hashem. I no longer have that same desire. But explains the Malbim, and this is such a deep concept. When we yearn for closeness with Hashem, he tachlis la'atzma, the kivui itself, the yearning, the desire to come close, that is the end goal. Ad shetachlis ha-kivui hu shi'echazek libo v'yachser v'yekavu'od. I don't want to stop yearning for you. I don't want to stop wanting you. But to the contrary, the more I feel this closeness and, 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 and desire to connect, then the more I will desire to connect. The kivui. The yearning itself is the tachlis. That's the goal. Ochlin v'shosin usmechim b'Rosh Hashanah. The Torah tells us that we eat and we drink on Rosh Hashanah. L'fisha yodin ha'kadosh baruch hu lehem nes because we know Hashem will perform a nes. What nes will he perform? How do we know for sure that I'm going to live the next year when we've seen so many wonderful people perish? Explains the shla. Shekol mi she'omed b'Rosh Hashanah lifnei ha'kadosh baruch hu b'tefillah v'chozer b'tshuvah. Any single person, doesn't make a difference where we've been, what I have been doing, what I haven't been doing. If I'm able to pull myself up and stand before Hashem with sincere prayer and tshuva, wanting to come closer, then there's a haftacha, there's a promise that Hashem will inscribe me in the book of life. However, says the Shla, unlike we learn in first and second grade, and perhaps even later on, it's not a simple equation. The ways of Hashem are mysterious. Darche Hashem nistera. We don't understand how everything works. We don't have answers for why righteous people may suffer. We don't have answers for why people who seem to totally neglect and, and despise the good and the downtrodden, why are they thriving? 
These are questions we don't have answers for. And sometimes explains the shloth theoretically based on other external factors. If it's the present state of the world, if it's where humanity happens to be right now, it could be that I won't make it through this year. But that's not in conflict to being inscribed in the book of life. And he explains. Im Cain, Gamlo Roy Lismoach it's appropriate, like the Torah told us, to have this joy in Rosh Hashanah, because we believe in the merit of our davening and our tshuva. Hashem will judge us meritoriously. Do we know for sure what the future will bring? Sadly, the answer is no. We are not prophets but I don't care what the future brings. Why do I desire to be inscribed in the book of life? Because I just want to know, I want to feel that I'm doing what Hashem wants me to do. Our desire for life, just like Sari Imenu, just like Yaakov Avinu, is not just to live for selfish reasons. Of course we want to live and we want nachas and we want these relationships to last as long as possible in this world. Of course we want that. We're all human. But the goal of being quote-unquote inscribed in the Sefer Achaim is not that now I know going into Yantif I'm going to be here for the next year. But I do have the bitachon that through my sincerity through my authenticity, through my tefillah and through my tshuva, Hashem will judge me. L'schus. What that means with all the other infinite factors and how that plays out, we don't know. But we don't care. We have bitachon that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will judge us for schus, and that itself brings the greatest simcha possible. Why do we daven in general? Explains the Mabit in his classic Sefer, the Basil Lakim. He says, Although we're davening for something in particular, as we should, we should pour our hearts out for anything and everything we need. But that's not the reason why I'm davening. But I am telling myself, I'm proclaiming that there's nobody else here that can help me or hurt me. I know that you are the source of everything, and that's why I'm turning to you. And by davening, I'm reminding myself that there's no such thing as status quo. And whatever brachas we have now, there's no guarantee they're going to be here for the future. So I turn to you, Hashem, because it's all from you. It's Einod Milvado, there's nothing else besides you. But not, concludes the Mabit, not that I'm only davening for this particular thing. If theoretically I would know before davening Mincha that the one person that I'll be davening for or the one thing that I'm really wanting, I know will not come true. Hashem will not answer my prayer in the affirmative. Do I daven any differently? Do I not ask for that thing? No. 
Dive in and pour your heart out because the goal of the tefillah is not just, I hope I get that thing that I want. It's the connection with Hashem. It's the kivui. It's the yearning itself. Therefore, we go into Rosh Hashanah regardless of how much preparation we have until now, but we have a strong sense of bitachon as long as we're sincere and we're genuine. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will look at us in a positive way saying, yes, you fulfilled your mission. You're doing an amazing job. What will happen in the future? We hope only the best. And that's our tefillah. We should only be zocha to a year of bracha, a year of hatzlacha, a year of simcha, and a year of refuah, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should protect all of Klal Yisrael and protect the entire world from so many things that are causing us danger and fear. We should be zocha to go in with a sense of bitachon and have a wonderful, meaningful yontif. Shkoyach.